Hello and welcome to the Bible and Me podcast brought to you by Precept UK. We are a charity based here in Salisbury focused mainly on Bible study resources and it's our mission to equip people to know God deeply and to live differently as a result. For more information, visit precept.org.uk. But firstly, I just want to start this off by saying a massive thank you to all of our listeners. We are so blessed now to be releasing Series 7 and we couldn't have got there without your incredible testimonies and reviews. If you aren't already, we would love it if you would consider subscribing so that you won't miss out on ordinary people with interesting stories about an extraordinary God. But without further ado, here's the podcast. Uh, well, good morning, everybody. I'm really delighted to be uh, welcoming uh, the Reverend Alex Pease to the podcast today. Alex grew up in London and Kent, uh, having been adopted uh, at birth. Uh, following his secondary education, he studied law at Oxford University, after which he worked for Allen and Overy. Uh, an international law firm until 2015, uh, firstly as a banking and finance lawyer, and then latterly running their alumni program. Uh, During his time with Allen and Overy, as well as working in London, uh, Alex also spent four years working in Dubai and also five years in Japan. And it was whilst in Japan that he found himself with stark choices to make regarding his work life and his family. Uh, Alex currently serves as rector of the Itchen Valley Parish uh, near Winchester. Uh, He loves running, photography, and also expounding God's word, which is good to know, being a vicar. Uh, He's married to Lucy, uh, and they have two grown-up girls, Claudia and Marina. Alex, wonderful to have you. Welcome to the programme. Well, it's a great pleasure to be part of it, Nigel. Thank you. Oh, well, no, great to have you. Now, you were adopted at birth. Um, what are your What are your memories uh, growing up uh, and of your education? I think um, uh, I always remember being loved. That was um, that was pretty important. Um, and um, but also, I was always told from the very beginning that I was adopted, and so that was um, there was never a t- some terrible shock time when. Um, it was explained to me. Um, so I always knew that from the very beginning, and I was brought up with that idea. And um, uh, and I think um, as a young child, um, uh, we were in a situation where we had a, um, I had a nanny, um, and um, I, I ruled the roost, really, pretty well. And, um, uh, and so this was rudely interrupted um, by being sent off to a boarding prep school at age seven. And, um, and it was really a, a big shock uh, to be separated from, from home for so much time, because in those days it was um, two or three months before uh, you saw your, uh, your parents again. And, um, uh, but I think actually, to be perfectly honest, although it was a real rude shock, um, I'd obviously brought this self-centered focus uh, with me uh, as an only child can can do, and so it was something that needed to be done. The other thing to say is that family life was very unstable. Um, my adoptive parents got divorced fairly early on after um, I was adopted into the family, um, aged a few months, um, and um, so my mother went from um, being um, the sort of lady of the manor to um, uh, really not having any money at all, and uh, cooking as a um, cook of um, directors' directors' lunches, and um, and so um, she then married again, um, and that marriage was a disaster. 
Um, um, she married someone who's an alcoholic. Um, and um, But I was away at school while all of that was going on. Um, but I think um, all of this, because she was fairly, um, she had to be occupied really with, um, with her, um, her own um, um, troubles, uh, sort of drove me into myself and in my imagination. So I was sort of quite solitary, I think. Yeah. I mean, were you, um, I mean, that's, that's tough. I mean, just what you're explaining there, you know, adopted and then parents divorcing and going away to boarding school, yeah. age seven. Um, were you, uh, were you gifted at school? I mean, on the sports field or, or academically? I mean, or, or you just sort of Joe average, really? Um, uh, no, worse than average. Um, <laughs> much, much worse than average. I was at the, the, the bottom of the class academically. Um, I was the worst, um, uh, cricket player that you could possibly imagine. Um, I am um, 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 to this day completely uncoordinated um, and um, it still sends a shiver of fear down me, the idea of um, playing cricket. Unfortunately, um, <laughs> because, um, uh, you know, I, I love the idea of it, but um, yes, yes. all of that. So I, I, I wasn't, none of my self-esteem was built um, through any of those yeah. those things yes interesting goodness me now um i understand that your stepfather gave you some important advice when you were 16 years old um what what was that advice and why, why was so, that so i just just need to sort of finish the story because my mother um had a new husband uh, really every time i went to a new school so during during my prep school there was this guy who's the alcoholic sadly then she married this other guy who used to be an alcoholic but was dry um, and uh, we moved to Kent and then I went to my uh, secondary school right. and he was um, he because he'd pulled himself up by his bootstraps and um, been dry for a long time he had very clear views on a number of issues <laughs> and uh, one of the issues which he had um, a view on was um, uh, was my my situation as he he called it and so when I was about 16 he said to me um, uh, someone in your position needs to make very prudent decisions because um, uh, I've got two sons of my own um, I can't look after you when you're older um, and uh, so you've got to be able to stand on your own two feet and you've got to be able to do that and you've got to be able to survive um, by yourself and so he said um, um, I think you should leave school when you're 16 um, and um, so I said oh I'm not sure I want to do that and he said because the only people who are really successful are people who leave school at 16 uh, because by the time they're 18 or 19 or 20 they're so tough uh, that, that no one will pull anything over over them um, so I said well I don't want to do that he said well okay if you want to stay at school and go to university then um, the only basis upon which you can do that is if you get a professional qualification and you're no good at maths um, and uh, uh, so you, there are only two professional qualifications in his view being an accountant or being a solicitor you're no good at maths so you have to become a solicitor and so that's pretty well um, where it went, but it was very much emphasizing this idea that it's only you who can uh, look after yourself. And so it's a sort of basis for fear, really, I think is the is the important point to make um, on that. Yeah. 
gosh so 16 goodness me just being told this is what you're going to do not not sort of asking you you know what would you like to do where where do you see, see your strengths um you know let's go and see some career counsel advice you know right this is what you're going to do no the career counsel advice at um at um at my school uh said um uh, said that i wouldn't be suited to be a lawyer um because of the um, particularly a city lawyer because of the mathematical approach which they adopted to negotiations as this particular person perceived wow. it. He was absolutely right as it turned out but um, but I think um, it was um, it was it, in a way um, it was good advice because um, he he got me to get off my backside. Really I um, mean I mean you've you've explained your academic um... yeah ability uh, up until this point uh, yeah. and so and so but you you managed to get a place to oxford university I mean, what what, what I... happened what happened there was um uh was that this third marriage of my mother's started to fall to pieces she started to um to drink um so she got into this whole alcoholism business and on one occasion i had to take a bottle of gin off her um which was very very tough when i was um about 16 17 and um so we 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 had no one um, my stepfather was so embarrassed about it all because he was a recovering alcoholic. And so uh, no one came to our house, no one. And um, I can remember being really astonished when someone that I'd met turned, just turned up one day at the house. I mean, I was uh, 17. I, I was sort of looking at him and just say, do, do people do this? Just turn up? You know, so we saw no one. And so um, what did I do during the holidays? Um, I wouldn't have um, turned into tennis like you uh, would have done in these situations, Nigel. <laughs> but, um, I, um, I, um, I just worked. So I read round my subjects. Um, I read university level textbooks um, for my um, before my A levels. And so by the time I got to my A levels, I was um, I was an Oxbridge candidate, really. <laughs> so the the the. Um, the sort of disastrous family life yes. drove me with this fear of um, having to take responsibility for myself early on yes. into um, into academic success yes. uh, to get to Oxford anyway. Yes, that is, I mean, that is amazing. I mean, that, that, that's a, that's a, that's a. If if there are young people watching this, um, sorry, listening to this, um, then that is a real encouragement to sixteen-year-olds, sixteen, seventeen-year-olds to get stuck in. Uh, you know, if they've got something that they really want to aim for, I mean, that is that is really um, impressive, if I may say that, for you to just get stuck into the books, really hard graft, and all of a sudden you find yourself with a place at Oxford. That really yeah. is incredible. I mean, it has to be said, when I went to Malvern, um, uh, I wasn't even a can candidate for the school. We, we had failed the common entrance. I had to... Um, uh, we had to persuade a cousin of someone or other who's a housemaster there to persuade the headmaster to let me in and very generously he did and then I came out um, uh, you know with a place at Oxford and deputy head school and all of that sort of stuff and so um, I you know Malvern College um, really really turned me around <clears throat> in so many respects. Yeah absolutely fantastic. Now um, <clears throat> you um, you, you've mentioned this sort of life of fear for many years. Um, give us an idea of what happened at, at Oxford and, and qualifying so, Oxford and, and then, you know, the career that you then set out. So then Oxford, Oxford, of course, <clears throat> I, um, 
suddenly the gates were open. I, <coughs> excuse me, I didn't have, um, I didn't have my stepfather breathing down my neck, um, and um, it was um, just fun, 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 you know. So girls, fun parties, um, and so of course the inevitable happened, which is I, um, I um, did terribly badly in my my exams, um, and. Um, and then left and did my law society exams and failed them. And so I was really, really um, <laughs> at, uh, at a sort of bottom. But I remember going to, um, to Alan and Avery, who I don't know how I got into contact with them, I'd just written to them. And uh, I don't think they'd probably accept me these days, um, uh, probably. Um, <laughs> which might be a mistake, might be a mistake, actually. But I, I think they, their HR department's more rigorous. <laughs> But um, uh, between how did, school, how did you get into the, how did you get into to work? Well, yeah. So between school and university, I'd been in the um, I'd done a gap year commission in the Royal Artillery, and then and then um, as soon as I got to London, um, I started on the Territorial Army, and um, so um, I did that for six years after after um, going to university. So um, so I had I had that, and. Um, and I remember going to um, Alan and Overy in their Cheapside offices uh, to see the partner who was in charge of admissions, Jeffrey Sammons. And it was an extraordinary thing because just before um, I went in, I sat in St. Paul's. I mean, I was by no means a Christian. And I sat in St. Paul's and just prayed, you know, please help me in this interview. And it was extraordinary because Jeffrey was a lovely, intelligent, amazing man. But he... Um, he, he found interviewing quite difficult. And so I realized that I had to help him through this interview. <laughs> and, um, and so I talked about the TA uh, and how much I enjoyed it and the leadership and uh, all of this sort of stuff. We didn't talk about law at all. And, um, and he gave, gave me a place. Um, and, um, and then of course, when I got my third and I failed the Law Society exams, by the grace of God, um, his son, had done exactly the same thing at Cambridge. And so he was in a sort of understanding mood. <laughs> and um, he, um, he said, okay, well, take the Law Society exams again, but you've got to pass them this time. Yeah. Um, otherwise, um, I'm afraid we can't, we can't consider you. Yeah. And um, so then, uh, astonishingly, um, I got into this incredibly prestigious firm, which it has to be said, wasn't as prestigious then as it is now. Um, <laughs> That's because yeah. you've been with them for a while. Well, no, I mean, I, I contributed a bit, but, and I think, um, you know, um, uh, but, you know, at the time I didn't have any money. You know, uh, you know we, we were paid um, whatever it was, £5,000 a year. Um, and I had to bicycle to work or run to work and live on lunch and vouchers most of the time. Um, and so the, 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 the whole thing of my mother having run out of, cash and living in penury and um, having had this great fall from grandeur to, to this penury and then um, you know that not having any myself and everything made me very very focused on on um, on on you know making money really yes and yes. um and not taking risks with um uh with anything really so i needed to do work as hard as i could but nevertheless i wasn't any good at it. Uh, my boss, uh, Jonathan Horsell Turner, who's a fantastic lawyer, kept on correcting everything I did, you know, and um, 
and I thought I was bored. It was interfering. The work was interfering with my social life, and um, <laughs> you know, and I was really wondering what on earth I was going to do. Astonishingly, they gave me a job after after articles, um, and this opportunity to go to Dubai um, came around. And so I went to work for this, my boss's brother, Richard Horsell Turner in Dubai, uh, where we were the government's, government's lawyers. And um, Richard had a very different approach to Jonathan in terms of how you manage lawyers. He, um, his approach was, uh, whereas Jonathan would correct everything, Richard's approach was when I was drafting something terribly complicated, which had never been done before from a blank sheet of paper. Um, and I really didn't know whether it would work or not. I said to him, look, can you just check this because I've got to send it out? He said, Alex, I've got a drinks party to go to. Um, you'll just have to take responsibility for it. And then I knew that I had to take responsibility. And if we, I didn't get it right, we were in deep trouble. And so I read every case on this particular sort of contract. Um, I, and when it finally went out late that night, I knew it was right. And there's a lesson. Then, so, there's sorry, a, then a, the client started to say, um, Alex was really pleased dealing with you and started to instruct me directly and not go through the boss. And then, then I sort of, okay, I get what this is. I get what being a lawyer is about. It's fun. Wonderful. Um, now, you, you, so you spent uh, some four years in Dubai. You then came back to the UK. You were made a partner. And then yeah. you were posted to Tokyo. Um, now, yeah. I understand that, you talked about this sort of life of fear and and sort of you know just having to make it yourself and and and, and make your money and all that um so this life of fear came to a bit of a head when you were asked to manage the office in tokyo um what was happening on the job front out there and what impact was that having on your wife okay so so i think just to give a little bit of background because the whole um thing from going from being a rather incompetent solicitor to I just need to explain that um, by the grace of God, um, we were asked to set up an airline in Dubai and I ended up doing it. Um, and that airline is called Emirates. And so that, that, that actually was the thing which gave me the experience which I needed to set up a department in London on aircraft finance. And, and so that was really the thing which completely changed the direction of my life at that particular time wow. in that particular context and so then i was sent out to um to tokyo to do aircraft finance work eventually they needed someone to run the office and um i threw myself into this a hundred percent um and uh you know by this time i'd married lucy who i'd met in dubai and we'd had a child and um that was claudia and that was fantastic and we were out there but um, then we had another baby, Marina, while we were out there, and I was working flat out. I was building, we, ha we only had one client in the Tokyo office, which was an aircraft finance client, who went, promptly went bust just before I got there. And so we were losing this huge amount of money every year, and, and I had to um, build it from scratch, really. And, um, um, and amazingly, um, not being... Um, a sort of super duper lawyer. Um, what I am is a salesman. And um, they needed a salesman just at that particular time. And so, um, so I was quite good at that. Uh, but it meant a lot of entertaining of clients, um, and um, a, a lot of time going around and seeing people and I was flat out putting it 
um, uh, in investing it. And then, um, <clears throat> but that came at a sacrifice for the family because they didn't see me. Um, Lucy was at home with two small children away from her family. Um, and this, um, and uh, one New Year's Eve um, on a beach in Thailand, um, the whole thing fell to pieces. And Lucy said, right, if all you're going to do with your life is work, um, I'm taking the children back to uh, to England and you can work as much as you like. And I'd sort of got myself into a place where I thought that, um, you know, we were under enormous pressure. I thought that if I put myself 100% into the work, yep. then no one could criticise yep. me. You know? Yes. Whereas, um, whereas actually we quite often put these things as, as professionals on ourselves. You know, yeah. we put them on ourselves sometimes. Um, anyway, so... Um, what did uh, what your response to your wife saying, it's work or me? Well, you see, strangely, the final um, blessing uh, that my mother, adoptive mother, did for me was uh, to have given me a window into how easily marriages fall to pieces. And so I was looking in the, into the abyss and I thought, this is going to be a disaster. Yeah. She, she didn't say she was leaving me or anything. She just said, you yeah. just work. Yeah. Um, but I knew that if I was sitting yeah. in Tokyo, yeah. You know, the, the thing was a disaster potentially happening. And so I said, OK, what do you want? Uh, you can have anything's on the table, whatever you want. What what do I what can I do to get you to stay? Well done, you. <laughs> and she said, right, first of all, we're moving house in Tokyo. Um, and um, you're and we negotiated that I wasn't going to be entertaining clients four yeah. nights a week. I was only two weeks and I was going to take the uh, children to school in the mornings and so forth yeah, and then yeah. she said um but we're moving house now at that time uh property prices in japan um will be indicated by the fact that all the real estate in central tokyo was worth the same at that time as the whole of the real estate in the whole of the united states of america and canada put together no and so moving house even a rental house to a more expensive area to the Mayfair of Tokyo, Shiraganadai, was, um, I just thought the firm will never wear the additional rent. <coughs> and so I thought, what on earth am I going to do about it? But anyway, we're going to do it anyway, whatever the consequences. And, um, and by this extraordinary miracle of, um, of Japanese deflation, uh, we terminated our lease in the less expensive area, moved to the more expensive area, and the rental cost was less than it was in the original place because of deflation. And it covered the cost of the move. So for far as the firm was concerned, it, was, it didn't make any difference on the accounts at all. In fact, um, it sort of e evened out. This uh, brought us within range of... Um, um, an expatriate church called St Albans in Tokyo. And we started taking the children to this church, not because we were interested in Christians or, or in church, uh, particularly me. I, was, I couldn't stand Christians. Um, I absolutely, for some reason, I thought they all had dandruff and wore sandals or something or other. And I just, I literally couldn't stand Christians. But we went because it was the one expatriate thing that we could do during this, <laughs> during during this time and it's just an, an, an oasis of uh, westernness in this sea of Japan and so I thought we'd go to them 
And we started attending and went to the children's chapel and everything else, children's church. And, um, and then, by an astonishing miracle, um, a lady deacon comes from Canada to Tokyo just for six months. She's with her husband, who's on a secondment to a Japanese law firm. And Jenny Anderson comes. And she, um, she says, well, what can I do to support the church while I'm here? I'll run this thing called the Alpha Course, which had never been done in Tokyo before. Um, and um, so um, basically a sign-up list went up in the church. And Lucy said, we're doing this course. And so at that time, I was doing pretty well whatever she said, <laughs> just to keep her in, 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 in on side. And um, so we went on this course. Halfway through the Alpha course, which we thought was great, and um, the people on the course were just like us, and they weren't sort of sandaled and covered with dandruff. They were just like <laughs> us, really. And um, uh, halfway through the course, we, um, when the Spirit Weekend was going to happen in Tokyo, we, we went off to the Philippines for a, for a holiday. And we were in this extraordinary situation of a place which is perfect. And normally holiday destinations, you look at the brochure and the brochure is not as good as the, um, yeah. um, as the place, the real place. The real place. Um, and um, and uh, if, yeah, just stop a moment, please. <clears throat> so it was an absolutely perfect, perfect place that we were in. The, the sun was shining, the beaches were perfect, the staff were perfect, the food was perfect. Even the children were absolutely <laughs> having... Um, a wonderful time, and um, uh, but Lucy and I were 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 rowing and rowing and arguing and arguing, and it dawned upon both of us at the same time that um, uh, that the problem was us, and that what we'd learnt on the Alpha course was true, um, that um, that we were we were broken and uh, sinful, and um, the world was 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 not as we'd thought it, and. Um, and so, and I haven't heard of any any situation where the penny is dropped for both parts of a couple at the same time. But that, but that's what happened. And so I went back um, to Tokyo. We finished the we finished the Alpha course, and we very soon after that um, turned back to London, and went round the office uh, to all the Christians I'd been horrible to for years and apologised. <laughs> said uh, you were right. Isn't that amazing? What an incredible story. So there you are in paradise and, and you're arguing, thinking what? I mean, God has got such an amazing way with each of us, hasn't he? I mean, and it was the start, the contrast between being in a perfect place and the fact that you were around with your wife thinking there's something wrong here and actually we're the ones that are wrong. I mean, that is just fantastic. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So you weren't to know when you booked that holiday to the Philippines, what you were, you know, you're going to come back as different people effectively. Exactly. Yeah. So you you then um, you went back to Tokyo, and then shortly after that, uh, a year or so later, you moved back to Winchester, well, the UK, and then you you moved bought a house in Winchester. Um, and uh, over over the next sort of intervening time, you you witnessed God moving in, in amazing ways. Uh, you had a friend in America that needed some legal advice, and you were able to step in and help. And through prayer, God God sorted that out. And then another friend of yours challenged you about your future with Alan and over the company you've been with for for many years um and god it seemed that god was leading you towards um theological training i mean you were trained as a lawyer now he he wanted to uh, move you on to 
to do some theological training. How did God lead you on this sort of different journey? Um, so um, I'd stopped um, from, I'd left the firm in 2005 and um, uh, because of this challenge from my friend Harry Benson um, uh, and that was that was fantastic and I and it was all very good natured with the firm and everything else and then 2008 happened and they sacked 50 partners on the spot uh, because of the um, because of the financial collapse and so suddenly I was there um, um, I was still there doing running their alumni program which was absolutely wonderful um, through all of that and but would certainly have been um, fired if um, if as part of that if I'd still been a partner um, but then um, in our rural area I was um, constantly frustrated really by the the sort of clergy who were being offered up to lead our churches um, it was you know they're nice enough people but um, having had the experience of Alpha it was really quite disappointing and so um, having started off by doing some marriage education for people on the marriage course running that sort of thing it then I was just so frustrated with it well I thought even I could do better than that and so out of that sort of um, frustration um, astonishingly I got through my um, uh, BAP selection process and found myself at St Melitus College um, uh, for ordination training <clears throat> and was three years there and then um, then was ordained and sent to the Itchin Valley Parish as a curate. Yeah, wonderful. And you've been there for the last nine or ten years um, serving yeah. your local community, haven't you? Yeah. Um, now, so you're in a rural community um, reaching out to people with, with the faith, with the gospel. Um, what are some of the barriers that you have come across to people becoming Christians um, and and how do you minister into those situations with people? How do you come alongside people and, uh, and in a sense, open their spiritual eyes to the gospel? So I think the real problem um, is self-reliance. And because um, particularly people in, in wealthy areas like um, Hampshire can rely upon um, uh, either their money to buy things um, they if something goes wrong they contact a solicitor or they contact their MP it's only when it's a real total disaster which they're facing that they call on God and it may be that in those situations that God will respond to that but um, you're you're essentially you've by 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 using the other things the money the the, um, the lawyers your intellectual skill all of those other things um, to solve all of your problems. You've essentially created a situation where you have no relationship with God. And so it's like you're beating on the door in your crisis, uh, the door of someone who you've never met before, who, someone who you don't know. And, um, and so that, I think, is the big problem. So it's the idolatry of self-reliance, I think, is really the, the problem. And how do you, how do you as, as someone, you know, loves the Lord and... And um, how do you minister into that? How do you get alongside people to open even the conversation that there is a God and actually he's alive and he really cares for you? How do you go about that as a rural uh, priest, vicar? Well, the one thing that you can't do is ram the gospel down people's throats. And so um, I pray. 
And so I will walk around the village, villages and um, um, I will chat to people and talk about their dogs. If I'm clever enough to remember the name of their dogs, I will do that, their children, ask about them. And the first sort of three or four conversations, this, this, this isn't people that come to church I'm talking about. I'm talking about everyone else. Yeah. The first two or three conversations are um, just completely routine about sort of chit-chat you'd have with anyone. But yeah, I'm wearing yeah. my dog collar. Okay. And, um, and eventually someone will say, um, my father's dying or I'm really worried. Because all of us carry something. Yeah. We, yeah. We've all got something that we're we're worried about and fearful about. And so I pray for them on the spot. I pray for them. And, um, and then um, we have things like, um, we obviously run Alpha here and um, um, we have home groups and so forth. And so I try and draw people into, into, into those. I try to get them involved in what the church is doing in, in our Way of the, Way of the Cross um, annual Easter pageant or our carols in the barn um, uh, uh, Christmas nativity tableau. I get them involved in all of those things so that they get to know us. Yeah. And gradually, um, people take the steps. And yeah. and that's that's how I try and, and do that, really. Building relationships, getting to know them. That's wonderful. Now, you've written a book, actually, which which I've just read. I think it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. It's called, and the title is, is, is fantastic. It's called Lemon Drizzle Cake and Other Fruit of the Spirit, The Countryside for Charismatic. So... Google it, contact us, and we'll put you in touch with Alex to get a copy of this book. Um, why did you write this book, and who's it for? <laughs> well, it's it's mainly for clergy. Um, it's mainly for clergy um, who come from a charismatic or an evangelical background, who are coming into the rural church, to avoid them blowing their ministry within the first two or three weeks <laughs> in the place, which happens all the time all the time because they assume that they're coming to a church which is like a church in a town or a suburb yeah. and um, they have the wrong conversation with the wrong person yeah. and then instantly it's around the whole com community what they're like yeah. and they they might just as well give up then there's no point in that um, it's every single conversation um, matters and as um, it says on the um, uh, the the app daily prayer app lectio 365 that being kind to everyone you meet is incredibly important yeah. um you you can't be off or um with, with anyone no. because in a city though you'll just not see them again no. if you try and ram the gospel down someone's throat in a city you'll never see them again so it's fine maybe uh, maybe that works sometimes but here you will see them again and again and again. You'll see them at a party, you'll see them at the, at the pub, you'll see them over and over again. And sure as anything, they're telling everyone about the conversation you've had with them. <laughs> That's either a good thing yeah. or it's a very bad thing. Yeah. And so there are lots of practical um, points like that. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, brilliant. So uh, I, if you are a minister um, listening to this and you are just about to be moved to rural Paris, it is a must read it is a must read um so yeah really i really enjoyed it and and good on you you know um because you will be helping lots of ministers into the future uh, i think it's brilliant absolutely brilliant inspired i have to say um now i understand you love preaching which is a great thing to hear for, uh, about a minister you know <laughs> um 
why is the Bible, you know, you said you hated, you actually hated Christians. Uh, I mean, why is this book, the Bible, important to you? Okay, so um, uh, it's very easy for us to make up ideas about what God's like. And so he can be the terrifying God of the, the pagan world, or he can be the, um, the wishy-washy God um, of um, liberalism, maybe, who's um, at the other end of the spectrum. The only way we actually know what God's character is like is by reading and wrestling with the Bible. It's the only way we know what he likes, what he doesn't like. Um, the, it's the way that we know that he loves us desperately, but it's also um, the way that we know that he has a path for us to, to, to go, and it may not be an easy one. And so that's how that's what the Bible does for us. And so I love the challenge of reading the Bible and to understand it and trying to get to know God better um, through that. He's revealed himself in this, in these, um, in this book, in these books. And um, I find it incredibly exciting um, uh, preparing to preach. I, I think I would say that I, um, of the of preaching and preparing to preach, the preparing to preach is the bit that I love the most. Um, I would say. Are you? Are you now? Now, obviously, are, are you limited in the amount of time that you are able to preach for uh, on a Sunday? I mean, is there an expectation in a rural setting that you can only preach for a certain amount of time, or do do you have the freedom to? to uh, I mean, you know. Uh, there is a there is a gentleman. There is a gentleman in our parish who um, who gets out his watch at the beginning of all my sermons and taps it after about sort of 13 minutes. But I say to him, I'm, <clears throat> I'm inclined to address him directly from the pulpit and say, I'm sorry, Philip, this is going to be a long one. Um, and then, of course, everyone on the way out says, yeah, that wasn't too, that wasn't too long. <laughs> no, the, the problem with long preachers is that if they're bad, yeah. you know, a good, a good, a good preach, um, it doesn't matter how long it is because you're on the edge of your seat. Um, if a bad preach is appalling, even at three minutes, you know, it's not the question of length. It's just that they're so used to people preaching badly yeah. that actually um, they can't tolerate. They'll tolerate it up to about sort of 10 minutes. Yeah. But, so the, if people complain about the length of preaching, one's really got to consider, um, is it because I'm doing it badly? Yes, yes, yes. Interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, how do you prepare to preach? So what I tend to do is um, uh, for three Sundays in the, the month, we use the lectionary. And so and, and I and I like this because um, it challenges me to onto ground, which I don't necessarily yeah. uh, know. I'm on uncertain ground, so I don't know the passages necessarily. So I will um, lie face down on the floor and pray for about five minutes um, and um, before I even open the open the Bible, and then I um, read through the Bible in a number of different translations and draw a sort of um, a diagram of of the ideas, um, and then um, then I might read um, some commentaries from the Bible Speaks today, um, uh, and so that's pretty good. Um, John Stott and various other people, and then um, I'll go for a walk and chew it over. I chew it over and I wrestle with it. Because I think, what on earth are you trying to say in this? What does this mean? What's this for? And, um, and then the, there's a wonderful moment when the fruit drops. And you think, that's it. And then the whole thing just writes itself like that. 
really really amazing do you write do you write it out and and speak from there oh, yeah. no i write it i I'm, I'm afraid my brain shot to pieces so i'm not really <laughs> i just can't remember it and i get flustered if i'm um so yeah. i'm afraid i do i do write it out in full no. the advantage of that is that i can then put it on our website immediately afterwards yeah. um, I, I think that's good i think that's really good but yeah. Yeah, actually um yeah, I think it's very good that, that that you do that. Um, do you have a favorite Bible book? One of the sixty-six books in the Bible, or character even? Well, um, I, I I suppose I have a. I mean, I like um, Peter because he's so honest about himself, which is very um, uncharacteristic of ancient literature. Um, you know that he he talks about his failures um, to to Mark and and so forth, and so this is really adds to the authenticity of the. Um, of the Bible, I think, and um, and Paul because of his clarity of his thought um, and his preaching, of course. But Barnabas, um, I like Barnabas because <clears throat> of being the encourager. Yeah. The idea of the encourager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think is um, I love that. Brilliant. What about a favourite Bible verse? Favourite verse, I would say, is one Peter three fifteen. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. This is how to do evangelism in the countryside. Brilliant. And no more than that. So people should be seeing that you're different and asking you questions. And then you um, give an answer for that hope. Um, and that, and that, with gentleness and respect, and that's how you do it. So evangelism isn't difficult, difficult uh, because you're just answering questions and you're praying that they will ask you the questions. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, what is... You know, you've been you've been in this current role for um, ten years or so. What what's next for the Reverend Alex Pease? Yeah, so so I'm um, I'm um, sixty five, just just become sixty five, and so I'm I'm actually stepping down for a number of reasons um, uh, next month, and we've got a grandchild coming round, which is great. Um, but I think I really want to be um, free to support Lucy and. Um, and facilitate Lucy in the sort of ministries that she's trying to do um, in this place, which will continue. And um, so that's just an opportunity to 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 do that, really. Um, so I don't know um, whether I will um, be doing anything else or not. It will be from the 15th of April. It will be I suddenly fall off a cliff. in the <laughs> Now, I've got one last question. Yeah. Um, somebody says to you, I'm not a believer in God. I don't believe God exists. Um, I've been through a really tough time. God doesn't care about me. Um, you know, why should I even consider the fact that there is a God? Yeah. How would you respond to that? Because there may be somebody listening to this in that situation. What would you say? Yeah. Well, I'm, I get this. I get this quite a lot. Um, quite often you get that. Um, those two contradictory remarks, <clears throat> which are, I don't believe in God and God doesn't love me, um, essentially. <laughs> so you sort of, in a way, can't have it both ways um, uh, because they're two completely separate problems. If you say, if someone says, I don't believe that there's a God, um, then you say, okay, well, um, how have you come to that belief? And you try and um, develop down that path of saying, well, atheism as much as a belief as um, theism. So um, just tell me how you can be so sure that there isn't a God uh, when you've got all this evidence of this wonderful creation around you. 
but if they say God doesn't love me, um, uh, you can say that the place is a broken world and, um, and actually he does love you and he will be with you in the crisis that you're going through if, um, if you'll open your heart to him. And um, you just need to call out to him and um, the doors will, will open. And I can assure you that's what will happen because it's happened to me so many times. Yeah, wonderful. I think the other thing to say, obviously, it's an obvious statement, is that um, God has demonstrated his love very practically for us Yes. in sending Jesus. Yes. So if you say, well, how does God love me? You can say, well, he sent Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? Well, Jesus is God as a human being. Well, what did he do for me? And yes. then you, obviously you can then talk about what Jesus actually did. And, and I, I sometimes challenge people and say, I, I, I challenge you to investigate seriously the claims of Christ, who he is, what he did, how he lived his life mm. with all different stratas of society. And mm. for you to come back to me and say, I've got a problem with Jesus. Yes. Because I don't think you will find a problem with him. Right. And I think I agree I, with I, I agree with that. And um, I think I think that is that is a good approach. Um, the only comment I'd make on that is that there is a danger of that approach going off into, well, how do you know that the Bible's genuine? And then you get into a sort of technical discussion about yes. about the canon and, and all of that sort of stuff. Yes. Yes. Um, so um, I, I would um, and maybe this is uh, coming from our slightly different perspectives, <laughs> but um, I would say I would say that um, if you call out to him, um, he will manifest himself to you. Um, that, and that's that's and um, to understand all of that, you need to write, read the Bible and so forth. So it is it, it is there are so many examples of people that he whose lives have been transformed but only when they've called out to him in, in desperation. Yeah, yeah. The thief on the cross, even. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Wonderful. Well, listen, Alex, thank you so much for um, joining me today on the podcast. It's an incredible story, an incredible journey. Uh, you know, you uh, remind me a bit of Joseph, actually. <laughs> you know, Joseph went from the pit to, the, to being the prime minister, to back in the pit, again. you know, all like this. And it's been a bit like that for you, but it's just a wonderful, wonderful journey of God's faithfulness, really. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, so thank you for being on the podcast. The Lord bless you um, in what he's got for you next. I'm sure, you know, uh, uh, as uh, we know from the Bible, there's no retirement in, in the time yeah. of war. We're in, a, we're in a time of war, uh, spiritually, as it were. Uh, and I'm sure that he will continue to guide you and bless your ministry amongst um your friends and family uh, where you are there in near winchester so really grateful to you for being on the podcast thank you so much thank you